All right. <clears throat> it's good to be here this morning. I just want you to know that I'm, <clears throat> I'm dealing still with a little bit of a cold, so there may be a moment in time where I will turn my back on you for the sake of all of us. Don't think that it's anything personal, although it kind of is. So <laughs> I just want you to know we're going to do our best to get through this. I want to start out with a question this morning. We do that quite often here, but I want to start out with this question. What do you want for Christmas this year? I know it's a little early yet, still a week or so before we really hit the Christmas season, but if anybody has been to Walmart in town, we know that Christmas started about two months ago, it seems like. So I want to ask you, what do you want for Christmas this year? Do you want something that is temporary that will potentially break and fall apart right after you open it? Or do you want something so precious and solid that it will never rot or corrode or fade away? Something that is eternal, that will last forever? I want you to ponder that thought as we work our way through our message this morning. I want to kind of illustrate this uh, in just a second here with, a, with a, uh, a story about John Wesley, but I need to blow my nose for just a second, otherwise this is going to be a very short sermon. So, That. I know that was a little distracting, but we'll get through it. Hopefully that's the last time we have to go through that mess in this message. So I'm going to talk about a guy named John Wesley. I'm not sure if you've heard of John Wesley, but I took this story of John Wesley's life. He, was a, he lived from 1702, and he died in 1791 in England. The story is from an article that I found on his life in ChristianHistoryInstitute.com. He is best known as a great preacher and evangelist, along with his brother Charles. They're credited with starting Methodism, which led to the beginning of the Methodist Church. John Wesley preached often about money. He had strong opinions about the right and wrong uses of it. And as a man, of one of the, as a man with one of the highest earned incomes in England in his time, he had the opportunity to practice what he preached. Many might ignore what he said about money, but none could dismiss the way he used it. What he preached by deed spoke louder than his words. As a child, Wesley had known grinding poverty. Samuel Wesley's father was the Anglican priest in one of England's lowest paying parishes, and he had nine children to feed and to clothe. John rarely saw his father out of debt, and he, once, and he once saw him marched off to debtor's prison. When John followed his father into the ministry, he had no illusions about its financial rewards. However, though he followed his father into the ministry, he did not share in his poverty. Instead, he was a parish priest. He felt God's direction to teach at Oxford University. He was elected a fellow of Lincoln College, and his financial status changed dramatically. His position usually paid him, now get this, okay, this tells you the power of inflation, all right? 
paid him at least 30 pounds, which is $13 a year. Can you imagine living on $13 a year? And that was more than enough money for a single man to live on. He seemed to have enjoyed his relative prosperity. Prosperity with $13. I just still can't get over that. While teaching, he spent his money on playing cards, tobacco, and brandy. I mean, who wouldn't? One incident that happened to him at Oxford changed his viewpoint on money. He had just finished buying some pictures for his room for the walls to, to have them decorated when one of the chambermaids came to his door. And it was a winter day, and he noticed that she had only on, had on a thin linen gown to keep her warm from the cold. He reached into his pocket to give her some money for a coat, and he found that he had little left. It struck him that the Lord was not pleased with how he had spent his money. He asked himself, will the master say, well done, good and faithful steward? He said, I have spent all my money on my walls, and I have nothing to close this poor, freezing woman. Perhaps a result of this incident, the article says, in 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so he'd have more money to give to the poor. His record, he records that one year his income was 30 pounds or $13 a year, as we just talked about, and his living expenses were about $12.70, or 28 pounds. So he had a little more than a dollar to give away. The next year, his income doubled, but he still lived on those $12.70, and he gave away $14.51. In the third year, it jumped to 90 pounds, or $41, and he still lived on the 28 pounds, or the $12.70, and gave the rest away. And as we would go through this article, we would see that he did that year after year after year of his life. Every time his income Increased and sometimes in his life he made thousands of pounds in a year and he lived on $13 a year and gave everything else away. Wesley preached that Christians should not merely tithe but give away all extra income once the family and creditors were taken care of. He believed that with increasing income the Christian standard of giving should increase, not his standard of living. He began this practice at Oxford and he continued throughout his life. As his income grew, he kept a small amount for himself and he gave the rest away. Never more having more than $45 in his pocket at any one time. Can you imagine that? Imagine living like that. The way he did it is he limited the luxuries and he, had, he identified with the needy. He preached that Christians should consider themselves members of the poor whom God had given them money to aid. And he put his words into practice by living and eating with the poor. And under his leadership, the Methodist Church in London built two homes for widows in that city. And there is so much more to talk about John Wesley that we just don't have time to talk about this morning. But I wanted to bring that point out because the passage that we're looking at here this morning in James 5, 1 through 6, the story of John Wesley gives us the idea of how we are to look at money that the Lord gives us. The passage in James 
James actually rebukes people that he knows that are not following that way of living. So, I want us to take a look at this and just understand the difference between what John Wesley was teaching and the way people in James's time were living. This is not an easy message. As you can tell, we're going to be digging into your closet. James has a tendency of not going into your living room and sitting down, but going into those places in your house that you don't want anybody to go to, where the cobwebs grow, where the spiders live. And that's where we're headed today, deep into the closet. Let's read our passage this morning and pray. We are going to be looking at James 5, 1 through 6. So if you have your Bibles, open them to James 5, 1 through 6. Starting in verse 5, I mean in verse 1, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's a great way to start, is it not? Yeah. It gets better from there. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure you have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for this word. Even though it's a difficult word, I mean, we look at this word, Lord, and we go, man, I don't really even know why we have to talk about this. It's so hard, especially right before Thanksgiving. And yet, Lord, you've brought us here for this time to hear it, to teach on it, to learn from it. Maybe as we go into Thanksgiving to understand it so that we can be thankful for the gifts that you have given us and so that we will know how to use them in the way that you want us to. Father, I pray, God, that you would speak through me this morning. I pray, God, that you would work through my mind and my cold this morning to make my message as coherent as possible. That, Spirit, it would be you whose voice they hear. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to hear what it is that you have to say, and you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. What we are going to see in this passage, as you saw when we read it, it's really set up almost like a trial in a way. We have the charges against these rich people being brought in verse 1, and then we'll see in verses 2 through the first part of 6, the evidence that James is going to lay out against these people. And in the last part of verse 6, we're going to see what our response is. What should we respond to when we find ourselves under this kind of of oppression. So when we look at verse 1, where it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He comes right out with a strong, maybe one of the strongest rebukes in the Bible against the unrighteous, unbelieving, wealthy, corrupt, and self-indulgent people he sees in his ministry. Aren't you glad you're here this morning? I am glad you're here this morning because together we're going to get through this. This is going to be great. There is fun at the end, I hope, I promise. 
We know it is a rebuke against unbelievers because James does not mention anything about repentance or forgiveness. He's just laying out a judgment. There is no use of the word brothers in the beginning of his discourse here where when you looked at other parts of James, you could see when he says, like, my brothers. He just fires out a strong correction to behavior that he sees as unbiblical. He calls them out. But there is one distinction that we must make before we move through this passage. Because it is easy for us here in this room where none of us would consider ourselves to be rich by United States standards to throw all rich people under the bus. But that would be a gross misinterpretation of what James is saying here. James is speaking against unbelieving people who reject Christ, who are corrupt, evil, rich people, who treat poor people poorly. These were people living in his community. And know this, that the Lord owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he is the one who distributes wealth as he sees fit. So, we have to know that there are righteous, wealthy people who use their wealth for the good of the kingdom. Those folks who see their possessions and money as gifts from God to be shared by others who need them, as Wesley's example shows us. We must understand that the folks that James is calling out are people who are not unrighteous necessarily because they are wealthy. They are unrighteous and corrupt by how they use their wealth and their lack of faith, the rejection of Jesus Christ. And after establishing this, James then tells us he informs the corrupt people that they should begin crying out and howling in agony because misery is on its way. In fact, it is coming upon them. This is not an if, it is a certainty. The word for howling means to cry out loudly, to wail in grief. Have you ever heard someone howl or wail in agony? When my dad was in hospice, there was a person in another room down the hall that Sherry and I could hear wail loudly in pain and in agony. It was awful. I do not know if this person was a believer or not, but I wanted their agony to come to an end for them because their howling sounded so horrifying and painful. I wanted them to die quickly for their sake. A few days later, when Sherry and I went up after my father had passed away, on our way up there, we noticed that the wailing had stopped. For the people that James is calling out and tells them to begin their weeping and howling, he does not promise that their misery will come to an end. And if you, as a person, dies without knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior, your misery will never end either. It is eternal agony. It is an eternal howling. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, Paul tells Timothy this. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money 
is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, it is not money that is the problem. Money is an inanimate object. It is by itself harmless. But it is the love of money, a love that supersedes a love for the Lord and for his people that lead to a falling away from the faith and an agony in misery. Proverbs 11:28 says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. For all of us, the lesson here is that we cannot put our trust in our things, our possessions, our money. Our trust must be in the Lord only. Even though you and I may not be rich by the U.S. standard, we are considered rich by the world standard. I think that's something that sometimes we forget. An article by CNBC in 2018 says that if you have a net worth of $93,000, you are in the top 10% of wealth in the entire world. Now, I know some of us here today don't fall into that category, but a lot of us do. If you own a house, if you have a retirement plan, if you own a business, if you have a car, if you have a bank account, you are among one of the wealthiest people in the world. Hopefully that puts things into perspective, and if that didn't, this will. According to the article, if you only make $4,200 a year, so that means even if you're on SSI, you rank among the top 50% of wealthy people in the world. So why does this matter? Because we all can have a bias of distrust against people that we consider to be rich, those who seem to have more than we do. But my point is, is that we have all been blessed one way or another by the Lord, by just living in this great country, the United States of America. So before we point fingers at others, like we looked at a couple of weeks ago, let's look at ourselves first, that log in our own eye. So the questions that we need to answer are many, actually. How do we use our money? Are we generous? Do we see our things as ours to be selfish with or the Lord's to use as he wishes, to be generous for his kingdom? And that is the point that James is making here. But even the bigger point that James is making is, where is your faith? Is your faith in Christ and his work on the cross or is it in your possessions, your own works and rewards? If it isn't in Christ, your life is about to become increasingly more miserable in the days ahead. According to the power and the, Holy, and the authority of the Holy Spirit given to James, he says that is a certainty. And that reminds me of a quote from the movie Titanic when Ismay says to Thomas Andrew, the guy who designed the ship after it hit the iceberg, Ismay says, but this ship can't sink. And Andrew's answers, she is made of iron, sir. I assure you she can. And she will. It is a mathematic certainty. A life lived by putting your, your faith in things instead of Christ, it will sink straight to hell. It is a God-given certainty. 
So as we leave this first verse, the actual charge against these rich people, and we move to the next section, we see who James is calling out. The unrighteous, unbelieving, corrupt, wealthy people in his community who live for their own personal gain, who have no love for the Lord or his people. They love themselves. And as we see in verses 2 through the first half of verse 6, there are going to be seven pieces of evidence that James uses to build the case for the Lord to judge these folks. Seven reasons why we are called to place our faith in what lasts and is eternal and not in things that are temporary. Let's read through these verses and then we'll pull these seven pieces of evidence out that James gives us. It is an overwhelming case. And this will also build a case for Christ. The one who lasts will see that there is a better way. Starting in verse 2, the very first piece of evidence is this, that your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. The second piece of evidence is your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. The third one is you have laid up treasures in the last days. For, behold, the wages of the laborers who moved your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The fifth one is, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Six, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And finally, the seventh one, you have condemned and murdered for the righteous person. In verse 2, that's the first piece of evidence. It's the rotting of everything they own. The clothing, their clothing is full of holes and moth-eaten. And the point is this, these things, excuse me, <coughs> sorry. Those are things of this earth because it's the curse of sin, the curse of the fall that these are temporary. They rot, they get holes, they wear out. Why would we ever want to put our love into these things? or worry or be anxious about any of them. Jesus proclaims in Matthew 6, 30-33, in the Sermon on the Mount this, But if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, we are not to worry or be anxious, because we know if we have faith that the Lord will provide all our needs, just not all our wants. We are to seek first the kingdom of heaven and the righteousness of the Lord, and he will provide these things. To put our faith in eternal, lasting things, not temporary things that rot or fade away. You see in verse 3, we see the second piece 
of evidence. And we'll move through these fairly quickly. We could go through them one at a time, but each one would be its own sermon, and we just don't have time for that this morning. You guys definitely want to get out of here, and the ladies have a lunch after service. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You know, it makes gold and silver precious and desirable and expensive is that they don't wear out. They don't corrode or rust. My gold wedding ring that I've had on my hand now for over 34 years has no marks other than some scratches from normal wear and tear. There's not a piece of rust on it. It doesn't corrode. And the word corroded can also mean rusty. And we know that even the streets in heaven are made of gold because it lasts and it's precious. Yet James says that this, these rich, unrighteous people will see their gold and silver corrode. And it will eat their flesh. And this will be the evidence that will be used against them in the day of judgment. You see, God will not mess around with people who reject him and laugh in his face and deny his sovereign will and his authority over them. By placing themselves on the throne of judgment, these people James is calling out will see their incorruptible possessions, even their silver and gold, the things they hold most precious, will actually corrode and rust and will eat their flesh like the flesh-eating disease that you've heard about now. Not a very pleasant picture right before lunch. Kind of like a zombie movie with bodies full of rotting flesh falling off their bones. And the second half of verse 3 describes the third piece of evidence. James is really starting to build his case against them just using God's word. He says, you have laid up treasures in the last days. These treasures that are made of the gold and silver that we just spoke about. But look at why this evidence is used to prove their unrighteousness. Jesus says again in Matthew 6, 19-20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Again, James is saying to us, really commanding us, he's commanding us to put our treasures, our faith, in the things that last. Kingdom-minded things. Christ-given things. Like our faith. Like sharing that faith. Like making disciples. Like giving to the poor. Even those poorer than you are. And using the riches that God has given us for the good of the kingdom, not just for the benefit of ourselves. A lesson that John Wesley himself learned. James tells us that these things will rot and corrode. They are temporary and they will not last. Heavenly things are things that last. They are eternal. They never fade or rust or rot. These are the things the righteous person is called and commanded to pursue by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Most of you know that this year my dad died and Sherry's mom died not too long ago. Both went to heaven because of their faith, 
in the eternal life that only comes from a trust and a confession of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Neither one of them took anything with them to heaven. Everything they had on earth, whether it was a little or a lot, was left behind. Not their bank accounts, not their TVs, not their food, not anything went with them. They were naked. They went to the Lord, clothed only in the garments of their faith in the one who is eternal, Jesus Christ. Our things don't matter here on earth. Eternal things are what matters. Verse 4, our fourth piece of evidence is maybe the most damaging piece of evidence so far. Sorry for the sniffling. Behold the wages of the laborers who, mo who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And get this. This is the part that's got to be really hard for them to hear. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I'm telling you, man, that's not where I, I wouldn't want that about me. Defrauding the people of God will not be tolerated. James is calling out employers, people who cheat their workers of their rightful wages, those who intentionally and knowingly cheat their employees. Is there a greater low someone can stoop to? You gave them a job to provide a service for you, and you knowingly had no intention of paying them for that work. Those who do this are the lowest of the low. Is that my opinion? Do I have the right to actually stand here and condemn them? Yeah, I actually do. By the authority of God's written word, look at what else James says. He says, the cries of these oppressed workers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. To Jesus, the one who has been given the authority by his Father to judge all things. And here is God's very own law, which James is pulling from. In Leviticus 19, verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, pay them now. That is the law of the Lord, of Yahweh, our God, the one who is the presence, the I am. He is the one who has spoken these words. And this reminds me of when I used to get into trouble by breaking a rule in our house. When I was a kid, my mom would tell me, I'm going to tell your father when he gets home. And then when my dad would get home, I was doomed. I don't know if you guys went through that. <laughs> I was doomed. My dad didn't beat me, just so you know. But I mean, when the law came in the door after work and I was in trouble, it was over. It was never pretty. We don't want to be there with the Lord. Those, who find our, those of us who find ourselves under the thumb of such oppression can rest in these words in Psalm 34, 15 through 18. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, and he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. 
I'm sorry. I want you to hear what the psalmist is saying. The Lord sees and he hears what is going on. Nothing escapes him. He is toward the righteous. He physically moves toward the righteous people. His people who put their faith in him, who call him Lord and trust him as their Savior. He will cut off the memory of those who do evil from this earth. In other words, those who puff themselves up and live in their own glory on this temporary earth will not even be remembered or heard from in the eternal heaven of God. I ask you, where do you want to be remembered? Where do you want to be known? The great promise of Yahweh is that he is with the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. God reigns. We are to praise his holy name. Verse 5 provides us the fifth and sixth pieces of evidence. And these are pretty self-explanatory. The fifth one is you lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And the sixth one is you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, it is not the luxuries themselves or even the riches of their food, but the fact that it was not shared for kingdom purposes. There is no thought in their mind to Jesus' royal law that James expresses in James 2.8, which we looked at earlier a few weeks ago. It says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Instead, it looks more like what Matt spoke about last week in James 4.16 when James said, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Evil. I told you, this is not a fun word. But we haven't even got to the biggest one yet. Now, we are. This seventh piece of evidence is probably the biggest and most damning piece of evidence against these corrupt and willfully evil people found in verse, the beginning of verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Hammer down. What James is saying here is this to them. You have put yourself in the seat of judgment and you have sentenced and put to death the ones who are not guilty. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the danger of making ourselves the judge, that we are not worthy and we're not theologically set to be in the place of judgment. Only Jesus is worthy to be the judge. He was given the authority by his Father. Only he is able to hear all of the evidence and render the verdict of guilty or not guilty. This is based on whether we were found to be righteous or unrighteous by our faith in his grace on the cross when he poured out his blood so that we, the guilty, could be forgiven and saved by accepting and taking the gift of salvation that he is giving us. That is the only way that we can receive this gift is he is handing it to us and we must take it. <clears throat> we must take it as our own. 
And if we do not take it, it is not ours. And we are condemned to eternity in hell, separated forever from the one whom we have rejected. Do you see how this verse that says you have condemned and murdered the righteous person can be the most damning evidence yet? We have no right or place to judge anyone and where they stand with the Lord. We cannot sit on the throne of the righteous judge. Jesus Christ, we are not worthy. Only Christ is worthy. To do so, we actually condemn ourselves. So when we read this verse from James, your mind may, like mine did, immediately race to Jesus where he was tried and he was sentenced and he was condemned to the cross. He, the most righteous person who ever lived, <coughs> excuse me, the most righteous person who ever lived was judged by the unrighteous people that he was going to die for. People put themselves on the seat of judgment, and Jesus willingly went without a word of defiance. Not a moment of resistance. He willingly went because that was his Father's will. To be the one who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God in him, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let us remember that we are not to be in the place of judgment against people and their salvation. Only the Lord can render that verdict. And there's another example of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and just as Jesus said on the cross, asking his father to forgive them because they did not actually know what they were doing, Stephen cried out the very same thing while he was being stoned to death after being wrongfully condemned by a people for a crime he did not commit. So let's review. We have now identified the people. We have seen the charge that James is bringing, his rebuke against the unbelieving, corrupt, rich. And he has laid out seven pieces of evidence against them based on their behavior with some strong arguments for their upcoming punishment of ongoing misery. A misery that will cause them to cry out and howl in agony pleading for it to end, but it will never end because in the end, their judgment of others who are believing in Christ and are called children of God actually condemned themselves. This last small section of verse 6 is really our takeaway for our response when we find ourselves under this kind of oppression. <clears throat> the last part of James 6, 5, 6 says this, he does not resist you. He does not resist you. <clears throat> Meaning, the righteous worker suffers. <clears throat> I'm really sorry. Complying and performing his work without complaint. He does not cry out to you, his oppressive boss or master. Instead, he prays and calls out to the Lord for help. We see two things in this that we are to do in this passage for us that are under this oppression if we find ourselves there. And the first thing is, is we are called to pray when we are in this situation. This kind of prayer is a prayer that shows where our faith is. 
Where is your trust? And it would be so easy to take matters into our own hands and even kill the oppressor ourselves. I'm talking about taking willful revenge, not just defending ourselves. And a willful revenge is not what we are called to do. As Matt pointed out, that there were two churches in our CFC, our Calvary family of churches, who dealt with violence in Aurora this week, both gun-related. 16 and 17-year-old boys becoming angry with each other because, well, somebody made them mad. And so what did they do? They gathered their guns, and they went and took revenge against each other and put other people in danger, shooting into a crowd and intentionally trying to kill each other. I want to say this right off the bat. I'm not against guns in any way, shape, or fashion, any more than I am against money. When they sit on a desk, they do no harm at all. They are inanimate objects, and they have no will or feelings about anything. Hunting is great. I've never actually been hunting, but I hear it's fun. But when we put our faith in these guns, when we take them up and believe that they can cure all of life's problems, and we take willful revenge against somebody and seek somebody out and kill them, that is where the problem begins. And these boys, instead of crying out to the one who could actually help them, fired their weapons at each other. Again, putting people that were in a park and in a school parking lot in danger so that they could just be the big boys on campus. Whoop dee doo. Nine kids were shot in these two instances. And did it actually provide justice? No. You know what caused it? Sin. Sin caused it. Sin is the issue with everything. It is the issue with the people James is calling out. We all sin, every one of us. So what is James talking about through this whole passage? He's talking about sin, self-centered sin, pride, arrogance, unbelief in Christ. Sin. So what is James' lesson for us when we find ourselves under this oppression? To cry out to the Lord in prayer is the first thing. And that proves where our heart is at, where your faith is placed, who you put your trust in. Proverbs 20, says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. It says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Our second response, then, is to wait for the Lord and let him deliver us. Your cries have reached his ears, as James says in verse 4. Do you not think that he will act upon what he hears against his people? Of course he will. Next week, Matt is going to talk about patience in the next section of uh, chapter 5 in James. And that is what is needed here, patience, to wait on the Lord. We saw in the previous section of the example of Jesus and Stephen, who both waited and trusted in the Lord. They took their oppression in silence. They were patient. They did not take matters into their own hands. Even to the point of death, they took it, knowing that justice would be theirs in the end in heaven. We know that 
those who commit evil here and have a big name on earth will be forever forgotten. <laughs> Has anyone ever, never heard of Jesus? Of course you have. That's why you're here. You know he will never be forgotten. And neither will you if you put your faith and trust in him. I want you to take this home with you today when you're talking about this in the car on the way home or when you think about it this week. Take home this truth. Things in heaven, kingdom-minded things are eternal. They last and they will not rot away. Things like gold and silver, money, power, fame, and fine clothes on earth are temporary and they will not go with you to your eternal home whether that be in heaven or in hell. In either place, you will be naked and you will be judged by your faith and your faith alone. Either your faith in the temporary things of this world, your own works, or the eternal lasting things in the gift of salvation given and accepted by you from Jesus Christ. The power of his resurrection, the might of his ascension, and the finished work of his sitting at the right hand of his Father. Our great hope of his return. His grace is everlasting for those who will accept his gift of forgiveness and salvation. And thus, he gives us gifts to use to advance his kingdom for others to find peace and forgiveness with him. So I ask you, where do you stand today? If you stood before Jesus today, what would he see you put your faith and trust in? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you for this word. It's a strong word, Lord. I just pray, God, that this morning that all of us would recognize that somewhere in this passage we live. There are times when all of us put our faith and trust in our things, even when we don't even realize it. I pray, God, that you would help us to remember that and to repent from it and to put our faith and trust in you only, to be patient, <clears throat> to wait for you to repay evil that we may find ourselves under, for you will deliver us. That is the promise of your word. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, who have not put their faith and trust in you, but are still fully trusting in their own works, hoping that the scales of justice will be in their favor when we know they won't. Our works are nothing before you. Lord, I pray for them that they would see that, that they would repent of that sin, that sin of unbelief, that your work on the cross is not enough when we know, Lord, it is enough. There is nothing that we can do that can make any difference in our salvation. We must put our faith and trust in you alone. We must accept your gift of salvation if we are to spend eternity with you. Father, I pray for them that haven't done that. If there is someone here this morning who needs to make that profession of faith, I pray, God, that they do it this morning. We lift this time up to you, Lord, and again, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.